At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. This episode of Burnt Toast is brought to you by Jet.com, a shopping site that makes it easy to save money on the things you're buying anyway, like groceries and home essentials. For 20% off your first two fresh orders, visit Jet.com and enter the code BURNTTOAST at checkout. And this is Food 52's Burnt Toast. Particularly in Western society, you know, we live in a society that's impatient with uncertainty or ambiguity. As science entered the picture, milk was the substance that needed to be decoded. And for good reason, because it was so essential in maintaining human life. And particularly the women, the, the milk that came out of women's breasts, although that oddly slips out of the picture very quickly. And it was this, you know, mystery and aura, this idea that one, one substance could be so filled with nutrients that drove people to trip over themselves to say that they knew what was what it was for. That's Deborah Valenzi, a professor of history at Barnard College who wrote a book about our fixation on milk. The same thing that many of us grew up drinking with dinner has inspired hundreds of years worth of superstition and magic and myth. If you go all the way back to the beginning of civilization, you'll find the transformation of water into milk in religious origin stories. A little later, you'll find prominent philosophers debating milk's magical properties. You'll see doctors prescribing milk to treat depression or old age, as if there were a cure for just getting older. And you'll hear milk at the center of creation myths for entire galaxies. People didn't just trip over themselves to decode milk. They fell repeatedly. Over the course of history, humans have been kind of bad at milk. But it wasn't for lack of trying. There were some very valiant efforts. Take Aristotle, who believed that milk was what he called twice-cooked blood. This was related to the incomplete understanding people had of bodily fluids. So the idea that something that wasn't blood was coming out of a woman's, woman's breast 
was fascinating to the ancients. Now, their understanding of blood was much more blood as nourishment than ours is. You know, we think of blood as its own scientific or its own natural um, substance. But they would have thought of blood as something related to bone meal, something that comes out of the bones. And that's very much related to how they, they viewed women's memory plans. Aristotle also believed that breast milk could cure infertility and eye problems. But I was anxious to get to the Renaissance, a.k.a. the time humans got especially weird with milk. So let's jump to Platina. So he is the author of one of the earliest written accounts of a self-help book. And he loved milk. He was a big fan of how good it is for you. But there were a lot of stipulations around how you should actually be consuming it. Um, reading that part is sort of like reading superstition in a way. Um, so one of the things that he said was, make sure you sit still after you drink milk. Exactly. Or else it will spoil in your stomach. So that was a popular belief, too. Absolutely. You know, this this problem of transportation of milk, which we talk about in you know, economic and social history, was a problem within cookery and in Renaissance understandings of milk right away. And the belief was if you moved around after drinking milk, it would slosh around and create curds the way it wouldn't a churn. Uh, <laughs> and if you had curds in, curds in your tummy, you would feel ill. And as you know from that account, Platina tells us how often people felt ill after eating milk products. And they were consuming incredible amounts from the looks of his recipes. Platina's recipes were ridiculously rich. His polenta called for a pound of fresh cheese, eight to ten eggs, and I really can't figure this one out, a half pound of sugar. His herb pie comes with a warning that it digests slowly, probably because of its pound and a half of cheese, half pound of butter, and each one of its 15 eggs. They were Mediterraneans, and it's pretty unlikely that they uh, had an easy time with ricotta cheese, which is pretty raw and difficult to digest. And ordinarily, raw cheeses would have been seen as rustic food meant for pretty tough bodies, peasant bodies, and not the bodies of these elites, you know, who are sitting around the table in Rome. So here they were, you know, kind of breaking the rules, drinking or eating food that was meant for the lower classes, but they were making it delectable and special in their own way. And then there's Marsilio Ficino, who had the idea that milk could treat sadness. People who were melancholic tended to have a body that was cool and wet, and they needed a substance that would somehow warm them up, and warm milk was that substance. He had other recommendations, you know, like combing your hair briskly and everything else, right? To yeah, that's right. And then like rubbing the back of your neck roughly with a with a towel or something. <laughs> right. You know, it, it's funny. Well, it's not so funny that melancholy is a pretty pervasive problem in early modern times. And people were trying to figure out all kinds of ways to treat it. And milk was a convenient solution since it seemed to be something you could drink readily and just see what happened. And so it was born. If you're feeling uneasy, you should drink a warm cup of milk. This was something I remember hearing when I was younger, if I couldn't sleep. But there's another remedy that did not quite make it to my generation. More on that right after this. 
brought to you today by Jet.com, a shopping site that makes it easy to save money on the things that you're picking up anyway. What I love about it is that you can get your groceries at the same time as your toothpaste, at the same time as your Ziploc bags, at the same time as your cereal. They really do have everything. The other week I shopped for dinner and browsed through their selection of produce and dairy while I stocked up on some very fancy shampoo I've been meaning to try. Because priorities. All you do is pick out your groceries from their huge assortment of fresh produce and staples. They also have a ton of organic, gluten-free, kosher, and vegan choices, and then they get delivered right to your door. Mine arrives safe and sound just two days later. And you don't need to schedule a delivery time and wait around for it. Jet.com uses packaging that keeps everything fresh and cold until you get home. There are no membership or annual fees. You just head to the site and start adding to your cart. For 20% off your first two fresh orders... Visit jet.com and enter the code BURNTTOAST at checkout. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great in clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hardworking hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. There's another remedy that did not quite make it to my generation. It's the idea that you should drink milk to stop getting older. This understanding of the body as, first of all, as having a central oven and things that we put into our oven, namely our stomach, are fuel. The elderly are gradually cooling and the oven is becoming less powerful. So milk was one of these substances, and, you know, it's somewhat contradictory, but if you can set aside the contradictions, that milk could be added in a way that would fortify the fluids. And, again, you know, as nourishment, as a, a kind of cooked blood, it could help elderly people. Milk as a treatment for old age became popular in the 15th century, and Deborah explains the idea so rationally. But Ficino's exact prescription is a little more stomach-churning. This is a direct quote. Immediately after the age of 70 and sometimes after 63, since the moisture has gradually dried up, the tree of the human body often decays. Then for the first time, this human tree must be moistened by a human, youthful liquid in order that it may revive. Therefore, choose a young girl who is healthy, beautiful, cheerful, and temperate, and when you are hungry and the moon is waxing, suck her milk. Yikes. It's not just this remedy. Around this time, the properties of breast milk became famous for their wide range of benefits, so much so that we have, on one extreme, people believing in its power so much that they drink nothing but breast milk for years of their lives. This was the case for John Caius, and I had to read this passage like four times to make sure I was getting that right. But even still, back then, you couldn't live on just anyone's breast milk. People believed that milk carried bodily and mental traits, too. In a way, milk was a form of genetics, while at the same time, it remained a long-standing source of myth. I love that Tintoretto painting of Juno who fell asleep and, without knowing it, had a child put to her breast by Jupiter. And he wanted that child to attain immortality, which one could get by drinking from the breast of a goddess. And she woke up when her milk let down and 
startled, moved her body away from the infant's mouth, and a spray, a glorious spray of breast milk went all over the universe, right? That's how we get the Milky Way stars. Fast forward to the 18th century, and our cultural praise of milk just keeps rising, becomes even more of a liquid magic. When people understood that they were being poisoned by the food they were eating, or, you know, in excess, they were, they were eating too much rich food, maybe too much meat, drinking too much. And when they sought medical advice, usually the doctors said, well, try a milk diet, a milk and grain that was not uncommon in the 18th century and even into the 19th century. And I'm thinking of one particular doctor, George Cheney, who said milk and seeds. And by seeds, he probably meant, you know, grains, whole grains uh, that were ground up. The associations with this kind of bucolic environment in which milk is, is produced that is almost as much medicine as the, the milk itself and it comes up in poetry, comes up in music. You can almost hear the, the milk in Beethoven, you know. I mean, it, well, and we eat through association. We taste through associations. Eating is a mental activity as well as a physical one. Okay, so I know we're skipping a ton of years here. Um, but after we've sort of established more mass milk production in the U.S., some of our beliefs take on the end goal of more milk. We need more milk production. So there's this idea that naming cows can help them to produce more. And I know that you've looked into this. So what was found there? Well, you know, in a way, those scientists were striving to defend a more traditional approach to cows. When it became clear by, I would say, the 1950s and 60s that cows were becoming viewed as milk machines. With the rise of nutritional science, milk was a more important part of the diet in Western, well, let's say in Western Europe, in America. And after the World Wars, uh, it was clear that America was going to lead the way by recommending a quart of milk a day. And that's a lot of milk. It was clear that milk had all three elementary properties, protein, carbohydrates, and sugar. And so it became this perfect food. And not just in America. You know, when the three elementary properties were understood, then along came vitamins. And milk seemed to have a lot of those, too. And what are vitamins? You know, more mystery and more science. So before we knew it, milk had to be, shall we say, you know, produced in a manufactured way. Mm -hmm. So you have all this decoding going on and all this scientific advancement happening on milk. And then at the same time, a farming advancement seems to be going backwards, which is call it Bess and it will give you more milk. You know, when I visited dairy farms, I, I would ask farmers, do you name your cows? And they instantly recognized that question as a test. Are, are you treating your animals humanely? Do they get out to pasture? There's a series of questions uh, related to that naming thing. There have also been beliefs that the music that they listen to or what they hear when they're being milked <laughs> right. can affect production too. There have been all kinds of studies, scientific and otherwise, to see what, what a cow will do. Oh, it's so interesting to see the cow in this, you know, regime of study and 
the idea of pumping music into a cow barn uh, was tried in the Midwest. I think probably, I think it was Wisconsin first. Seeing that, you know, the environment was um, gentle and stimulating the way we might interpret it, the cow might give more milk. There's this great picture in your book of a bunch of musicians sitting directly in front of a couple of cows and, and like, giving them a concert. Was there anything sound there? I think that study said that the increases in output were noticeable but not enough to make this into a science. Any farmer would say to you, if you treat a cow well, the cow is going to produce for you and things will go better for you. But we've spliced that into so many different pieces now. The name, the music, you know, what are all the ingredients to a happy cow's life? What is it about milk that makes it so easy to form beliefs around, to build myths out of, or superstitions that lead to scientific studies? Even today, there's new research out this month reporting that drinking milk could help women avoid early menopause. And the debate about whether or not you should even drink milk continues, as it has for years. Milk is as pervasive as it ever was. You know, my suspicion as I studied it, it had to do with the repression that we've we've caused ourselves to experience related to women's bodies and the fact that milk is a human product. And, you know, we even say human product, but we don't say woman's product. But it, it, it's that linkage, I think, to the wider world that made people of the past link it to these magnificent myths and mysteries Deborah Valenzi's book is called Milk, A Local and Global History. And there's so much more magic in it, including the fact that we had canned milk for many more years than we had a way to actually open the cans, simply because people were too bored by the prospect of inventing a can opener. Pick up a copy. It'll help you kill it at cocktail party conversation. This episode of Burnt Toast was produced by Gabrielle Lewis and me, Kenzie Wilbur. It was engineered by Jennifer Lai. Thanks also to Amanda Hesser and Meryl Stubbs, the founders of Food52, and to Andy Bowers at Panoply. Our ad and theme music is by Joshua Rule Dobson. All other music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Our logo is designed by Abby Lossing. Please let us know what you think of the show. Leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help. Or you can get in touch. You can email us anytime at burnttoast at food52.com. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks so much for listening. This episode of Burnt Toast is brought to you by Jet.com, a shopping site that makes it easy to save money on the things you're buying anyway. Producer Gabrielle Lewis, what's in your Jet.com cart right now? I'm getting ready to host a brunch, so I've got Ooh. some yogurt, mm-hmm. some orange juice, nice. smoked salmon. Mm-hmm. Can I come to the brunch? We'll talk about that later. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> there are no membership or annual fees. You just head to the site and start adding to your cart. For 20% off your first two fresh orders, visit jet.com and enter the code Toast at checkout. 